Uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Facts versus Rhetoric. Over the past three years, we have been bombarded with intellectuals, experts, and the elite telling us what we should do for our health, safety, and well-being, and our planet's health and well-being. Today, we are going to look into this process and look at the risks of blindly trusting those people who are telling you what to do. And if I do my job, hopefully I'll be able to illustrate some potential problems with trusting the experts without question. And I'm going to try to give you a different way to look at it. My biggest gripe has always been, please give me your information and I will make up my own mind, right? Ideally, we should be getting both sides, the pros and the cons, you know, informed consent, if you will, and then be allowed to make up our own mind. Unfortunately, that is not happening. And even worse, we're letting people with fancy initials after their name or Ivy League degrees or millions of dollars in the bank or people with a wide reaching platform or some level of fame decide what is best for us. And my skepticism has always centered around the understanding that nothing is a one size fits all easy button solution. How can someone who doesn't even know me know what's best for me? Most people are more trusting of the experts, the intellectuals, and the elites, and believe they have our best interest in mind. And I'm not suggesting you're wrong for going along with the guidance of the experts. Rather, I'd like to point out some limitations and realities about what they know. If after considering the points made today, you trust what they are telling you, after you have applied your toolkit of thinking for yourself, thinking critically, being skeptical, not complying in advance, and never going along with a bad idea based on a falsehood, if after all of that you want to trust that particular expert's opinion and or recommendation, fucking awesome. It's a free country. I will always fight for your right to choose what is best for you and your family, always. We're going to start with knowledge. From an early age, smart people are reminded of their superior intellect. They're ushered off into AP classes. They're presented with more opportunities. They're treated differently. And when you're a kid, if you're good in school, that equals that you're a good person. So this is just the beginning of how these intellectuals get this inflated sense of their own wisdom. That is further compounded by these smart people being the exception rather than the rule. So from the beginning, only a small portion of the kids in school have the mental capabilities to qualify for this elite club. So a small group gets the red carpet educational treatment all the way through school. And each time they graduate and advance, the pool is whittled down. So by the time they're done with college, their educational resume is in rarefied air. But all of their education and expertise is usually in a very specific field. People with immense knowledge of certain area of study stick out more and have better chances for opportunities versus the guy who got straight A's in just all areas of study. And once school is done to survive in the marketplace of ideas and thinking, your modus operandi is to get published or die. This is a popular phrase in the intellectual community because ideas are now your life's work. No one will pay you to state the obvious or to acknowledge that, hey, this problem is way too complex for a simple solution. 
So standing out in a small group of people who are just as knowledgeable on an area of study as you are becomes the goal. And that is a problem we have to consider. The intellectuals, the experts, and those elites are focused on what? Standing out. They're not focused on being right. So we have a system that is producing people who need to stand out with their ideas. And how do you separate yourself from the pack? Well, you have to move from the middle and further towards the extremes. And because you have good verbal skills and can sound smart, you're going to be good at evading questions on your potentially extreme views. So these good verbal skills can either help foster knowledge or be used to suppress it. If you're interested in learning more and you're open to updating your ideas based on new information, then those good verbal skills are an asset. However, if you want to dig your heels in and defend your unique position, because that's how you're going to get noticed, you have the verbal skill set to evade and suppress any contrary knowledge. Because people with good verbal skills can think on their feet. They're good at debating. And if they can just regurgitate a bunch of smart sounding shit, a lesser mind is just going to get stuck in the weeds and they'll sound like they're correct. Well, Nick, what's wrong with someone being hyper-educated in a specific field? It's a great question. There's nothing wrong with that. There are no problems when the intellectual or expert skates their lane in their specific field. The issues I'm trying to warn you about arise from intellectuals and experts who are renowned in a specific field of study, and then they don't stay in their field of study. Because it's easier for these people to fall victim to the assumption that their superior ability in that little field of study just magically carries over into everything and can be generalized as having superior ability and knowledge overall. The list of top-ranked intellectuals or experts who make utterly irresponsible statements, who have advocated for unrealistic or reckless or dangerous things is freaking infinite. You know, there's Bertrand Russell, the famous British mathematician, philosopher, and public intellectual. He had considerable influence on mathematics, linguistics, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, computer science, and then various areas of philosophy, like philosophy of mathematics, of language, epistemology, and metaphysics. He's a freaking brilliant mind in his field. However, after World War I, he opposed military rearmament against Nazi Germany. In 1937, he wrote in a personal letter, quote, If the Germans succeed in sending an invading army to England, we should do our best to treat them as visitors, give them quarter, and invite the commander-in-chief to dine with the prime minister, end quote. So that did not age well. This is just a good illustration of a very smart man in mathematics saying something very dumb about foreign policy. In a more recent example, we can look at Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, for those that don't know, is an astrophysicist. He's an author. He studied at Harvard and Columbia. He's directed the Hayden Planetarium. He's had TV shows, podcasts. Very brilliant man when it comes to outer space and the science of the cosmos. So if you want to discuss outer space, Neil is your man. He is an awesome communicator of science, of space. The problem is, he's such a great communicator of his specific area that suddenly people are interested in his thoughts on other areas of science and medicine. I included a link of one of his interviews, and I suggest you 
click on it and just listen to his interview clip with Patrick Bet David because he sounds more like a politician than a scientist because now he's not talking about space and he's making excuses for politicians and policymakers instead of acknowledging the flaws in the so-called scientific consensus. This is recent, so we have the benefit of hindsight. Neil can lecture me on space anytime. However, his commentary on this novel public health contract that I guess we all supposedly signed implicitly as citizens of this country, like that should be viewed as one man's opinion given no more weight than any random person's opinion from the phone book. And a quick sidebar, we have said on this podcast before, if I want to learn about acting, I will listen to an actor. If I want to learn about shooting a basketball, I will listen to a professional basketball player. If I want to learn more about making money, I will listen to a billionaire, but one that has earned their money by creating something, not one who's inherited it. So why anyone puts extra weight on their social, political, or medical commentaries beyond me. They live in a different planet than you and I. They don't need government to help them. They don't have to worry about, hey, is the insurance going to cover this hospital bill? The inflation doesn't affect them the same way. Their grocery bills double too, but they don't even notice because they're not the ones doing the goddamn shopping. But I digress. Not every expert in their field does this. This, this phenomenon seems to be reserved for those thinkers, the, the people that traffic in ideas. I haven't seen any chess grandmasters on TV giving their two cents on the Ukraine conflict or some violin prodigy giving financial advice on CNBC telling you should buy freaking crypto. The thing about intellectuals and experts is they have knowledge on a great range of topics. But some of those topics they are expert on. They've devoted years of their life studying it. And some of those topics, they might have read a few pages of a book. But the air of authority they exude is the same when they discuss either of those topics. And that's problematic when we don't consider that when we're listening to these people. Next, I wanted to look at specific knowledge versus mundane knowledge. So someone who is knowledgeable usually has a specific kind of knowledge that's not widely possessed by the general public. Someone who has even more knowledge of more mundane things such as plumbing or carpentry, electrical, etc., like a handyman, they are less likely to be considered knowledgeable by those intellectuals. Because the experts and intellectuals and elites get more attention, they have a bigger platform to share their ideas. Their information is valued more. But another key point to keep in mind is it doesn't mean their knowledge has greater application to the real world. Great example of this is Bill Gates. Here is a man with a questionable computer expertise in the 1980s. He is now very wealthy. What he says apparently matters. He's on TV giving medical advice. He's advocating for climate policies. He's meeting with world leaders and policymakers and donating hundreds of millions of dollars to media companies for favorable coverage. So hopefully after today's episode, you will be able to look at him and go, huh, wait a minute, he's unelected. He's not an engineer. He's never finished college. He's not a doctor. He's not an epidemiologist. He's not a virologist. He is a documented thief. He does own virus patents. He owns a vaccine company. And he frequented Jeffrey Epstein's private island. Hmm. So set aside the massive conflicts of interest. He makes more money from vaccines than he does from computers. He started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to give away his wealth. Remember that? 
And that was just damage control after the government sued him for antitrust law violations in May of 1998. So in the mid-2000s, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funding grew to $2 billion. In May of 2002, the foundation purchased stock in pharmaceutical companies Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Pfizer. Hmm, that's a great investment. On June 15, 2006, Gates announced his plan to transition out of the day-to-day -day role of Microsoft and, hey, I'm just going to focus on giving my money away. Okay, fast forward to 2020. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the second largest charitable foundation in the world, holding $49.8 billion in assets. Whoops, I tried to give my fortune away, but I accidentally grew up by over 2,300%. So set aside all of that bullshit and just focus on the fact that this unelected billionaire who is not an engineer, never finished college, not a doctor, not an epidemiologist, not a freaking virologist, is a leading voice on vaccines, public health, and the environment. Remove the money and the profit motive, and Bill Gates and I have the same goddamn educational qualifications to speak on world health and the environment. And I'm certainly not saying you have to have a certain level of education to be allowed to have an opinion on a subject, but you can't blindly accept what anyone says, let alone an unqualified person with questionable motives. Another example Thomas Sowell used to highlight the difference between expert knowledge and mundane knowledge was on the Titanic. Now, there's no debate that the crew of the Titanic were expert seamen with immense knowledge of seamanship and the vessel they were operating. However, on April 15th, 1912, the mundane knowledge of where the freaking icebergs were located would prove to be more useful to the passengers on that faithful night. So the expert does not equal infallible. Next, we're going to look at the flawed approach that the elites, the experts, the intellectuals have to the decision-making process. We're so blown away by the intellectual special knowledge in a particular, very specific area, it's easy for us to think that those super elites are a better guide on what we should or what we should not do in a policy level. We forget the fact that the population has more total mundane knowledge than those elites, but we still defer to those less capable of solving issues. The top-down approach where the elites, experts, and intellectuals are so convinced of their own superior knowledge is just a recipe for disaster. You know, we cannot afford to keep deferring to the experts, intellectuals, and the elites on a policy-making level, central planning level, there's no doubt that those central planners and those experts have more expertise and more statistical data at their disposal, right? Their technology, all the stuff they're using to look at these problems, they have better access than your average consumer. Yet the mundane knowledge of the millions of consumers have a way better handle on the market these central planners are trying to fix. And we've just accepted this misguided notion that people with more per capita knowledge about some specific area should be guiding our society. Somehow we've gotten to a point where we're like, oh, social decisions can't be made by those less knowledgeable segments of society or the 99% that live in the freaking real world that results from the one percenters policies. That is asked backwards. What experience do the 1% have with needing anything from government? Yet we're tasking those people who are so out of touch with the actual problem and won't suffer the consequences, we're tasking them with fixing the problem because they're quote-unquote experts in the field. 
And this is why I'm a free market guy. I'd rather bet on the 99% who are engaged in a particular market to set the prices or policies through supply and demand. The people that are actually bidding prices up and down. The people who are actually selling the fucking products and taking delivery of them. They will set the correct and fair prices for both sides. Give me the experience of the many instead of the presumptions of the elite few who always pay no price for being wrong. Also, who's more likely to have a shared vision with yours? The elites who don't even live on the same planet we do or the other 99% of the people you interact with every day? The market is always smarter than the smartest person in a particular market. Does that make sense? And I'll give you a personal example from my personal career. I could have said, well, I'm the expert. I know more about business, so I should make all the decisions. But I would miss out on the 99% that is below that business decision level. I would miss out on the 99% of people's mundane knowledge that I would not have. And when I was younger, I had a bigger ego. I had more insecurities. I'd love me some new forms or procedures to create efficiencies in, in parts of the business I wasn't even involved in on a daily basis. Because I'd be up at that 10,000 foot level looking down going, oh, so we have a problem. We're not collecting this piece of data during a service visit. Quick, hold my coffee. Let me open Excel, make a spreadsheet, create a form, make a fucking flow chart, call a meeting, roll it out, problem solved follow up in a couple weeks, zero progress. In fact, whatever I was trying to fix was fucking worse. And then I started looking into it. I'm like, wow, there's no fucking oversight on the forms getting done. No one was tasked with the oversight to make sure they're getting entered into the computer. I'm not doing anything with the information I'm collecting anyway. So I had no one to be mad at but myself. So me being the quote expert didn't mean shit when I stepped outside my bubble of expertise and the fact that I was assuming that my amazing intellect and, and expert superpowers would just follow me wherever I went and that they would somehow translate is the common trap of the expert not skating their lane or presuming that their knowledge applies to everything. So what I learned the hard way through a very painful, long process of killing my freaking ego and accepting the fact that I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room on every fucking subject, becoming self-aware of my own mistakes, I learned the more voices we had trying to solve the problem, the better chance we have at fixing it. And also, we can cut out a lot of the trial and error as well. If we have all the participants in the room, we would get all of the mundane knowledge out in the room. The what I didn't know would get out in the room. And all that information that those guys, the 99% forgot they even knew because they do it every day, that would come out. Because one thing to ask for feedback, and it's a totally different thing to beg for it, demand it, make it paramount, reward it, show there's no retribution or retaliation for criticisms. You make it important to you, then they will make it important to them. For years, I was like, what do you mean there's a problem? Why didn't anyone say anything? I'm always asking for feedback. But what I learned is if you treat feedback like small talk about the freaking weather, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get that polite chit chat with no substance. And that's when you get blindsided because you assume silence equals happiness and efficiency. No one wants to seek out problems. Then you're going to have to deal with them. You can see how easy it is to get in trouble by thinking you're the expert. You start hanging out with other experts and you start using phrases like these freaking people the experts, intellectual, and elites or think they're so freaking superior, they'll never admit the other 99% might be right or that they might be wrong.
So the takeaways from today are the intellectuals, the experts, the elites are focused on standing out, not being right. Beware of the assumption that people's superior ability in a particular field magically carries over into everything and then can be generalized as having superior ability and knowledge over all topics. Just because the expert, the intellectuals, and the elites get more attention that they have a bigger platform to share their ideas doesn't mean their knowledge has greater application to the real world that we all live in and have to deal with the consequences of. People who need to stand out with their ideas have to separate themselves from the pack by moving away from the middle, away from the consensus, and further towards the extremes. And remember those realities while using your toolkit of critical thought. You know, how did this person gain their knowledge? Do they even have knowledge or just an opinion? And your skepticism, who benefits from this advice? You do that. If you do that, it will enable you to better sift through the vast amounts of information and make an informed decision on what is best for you. Lastly, you need to keep a scoreboard. Track records count. I listen to the people who were proven right and stop listening to the people that are keep being wrong. I'm more interested in finding out what data they were looking at and making their predictions. Were they lucky or was everyone else just missing something? This is important for those of us who don't have the Ivy League education credentials, fancy initials after our name, or giant freaking platform. Because regardless of all of that, you should be judged on your track record as well. Like Leo said in The Wolf of Wall Street, I ask my clients to judge me not on my winners, but on my losers because I have so few. Let's pay better attention to who we are listening to and remember the ones on TV don't know you. They don't know your family. They don't give a shit about your health. Their only concern is to make advertisers happy so they can continue to collect a paycheck. Life is hard, and so am I. You better give me something so I don't die. Move the key for the soul.